Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. I hope everybody is well. The COVID world continues. The good news is, Dick Darden and I were talking about, which I'll introduce you in a second, the Chiefs, as of yesterday, we're recording this on a Monday, are going to the Super Bowl. So goodness in the world still prevails, if you guys were wondering. Life is still good as we know it, at least for some of us, now that we got the Chiefs. At least I got something to look forward to one way or another. But welcome to Making Data Simple. Thank you for listening. Today, I have two distinguished guests. I always have distinguished guests, but these are the guests. Suge was singing earlier. <laughs> I want to have you know. I have, sorry, Sujatha? Sujata Prepa. Wow, I did it. I th- well, that was pretty close. Anyway. She is a distinguished engineer, specializes in artificial intelligence, machine learning technologies. So she's really pushing the adoption of AI, data science, machine learning in the financial services sector. She's also been a lead for security programs, but certainly the U.S. national security program and led the application of modernization initiatives from several top federal agencies. And I should also say Suj is a member of the IBM Academy of Technology leadership team. And this is actually, we're doing three podcasts. We had Kristen on last time, Kristen Summers. We talked about playbook of instrumenting AI into business, you know, culture, talent management. Today, we're going to talk about the data framework. We'll see what's meant by a data framework. I also have with me Dick Darden. He's a distinguished engineer and digital human evangelist. That sounds impressive, man. For North America government. He is essentially a distinguished engineer at IBM Cloud and Cognitive in the public sector, federal, state, local, and in education. Another evangelist promoting digital human technology to improve the human-machine interaction. And he's been the chief architect previously on several federal government agencies, including U.S. Joint Forces Command, U.S. Department of Defense, and U.S. Navy. I don't know if I'm supposed to be talking to you guys right now, because I'm sure there's some security clearance that that I don't have that you guys do have, but uh, hopefully I'm not causing anybody to start spying on my texts or, or something. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. I gave a little introduction. What I try to do, or I like to do, is let you introduce yourself. So, Suj, why don't you go first and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Uh, you hit it right on, on the topic there, um, Al. I am very passionate about AI uh, and machine learning technologies, and I want to make it work very efficiently and in a fair manner for all the businesses out there. So in keeping that in mind, I have decided to be the AI adoption leader for the financial sector, and that's what I'm doing today in driving the cognitive care, the content intelligence, Yay apps, initiatives for the financial sector. Now, a couple of fun facts um, are uh, I work with the universities and IEEE organization very closely, and uh, I take my uh, presentations to them and encourage them to adopt AI and machine learning in their curriculum. Very nice. You know, I can honestly say in any podcast I've been, I don't know, there were at 150 or so, nobody has started singing before a podcast. I wish I would have captured that. What song were you singing? Could you give us a little rendition? <laughs> Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. He Go ahead, keeps us hanging on. <laughs> That's because I was delayed. Sorry. 
that was kind of a hit and a lovely voice all at the same time. When I say hit, you were kind of pushing my buttons because I was keeping you hanging on. All right, I got it. All right, Dick, go ahead and introduce yourself, and then I'm going to give you some uh, grief about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but go ahead. <laughs> As Al said, I'm a distinguished engineer uh, focusing on public sector in our cloud and cognitive uh, expert labs. In a former life, I was the, the chief engineer of the USS Seahorse, SSN-69, which is a nuclear-powered fast attack submarine in the United States Navy. Wow. Um, and so that kind of uh, affects uh, things I do in, in ways that uh, that are interesting in some ways. But one of the ways is that I like to tell sea stories, so maybe I'll get a few in today. And hopefully, depending on the outcome of a certain game in about two weeks from today, uh, I'll still have a job. Because I do root for the, so, I do root for the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I don't bet against the goat because he's broken my heart many, many times uh, when when Tom Brady uh, played for the Patriots. But now I actually get to root for him because he, he he plays for the Buccaneers. So the question is: Is how are you going to feel when you get beat? That's what ah, I mean. I'm not going to get beat. <laughs> don't bet against That's, the goat. I told oh, you. You, you know you'll that break, the goat. break your heart just like he always has. Hold on, hold on. I'll, I'll admit, the guy is at the Super Bowl. I'm done avoiding the term goat. I guess he, he must be the goat. But I will say this. He's an old goat. And we've got the new kid. Get that? Goat kid. We've got the new kid in my home. And uh, look, he's going to whip up on you. I, look, we'll have to make a bet, a side bet. We can do a side bet. And I, I hate to tell you. It's, at least yeah. you made it to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Mahomes is good. I don't want to jump around in your sorrow. That's okay. Again, this is, the I think, the second podcast of three that we're going to have on what we call the AI Academy. As I said earlier, uh, the first one we did was with Kristen Summers. I think that'll be played directly before the week before this one. We try to get out in front of some of our recordings. She talked to the playbook on how to instrument AI, culture, talent management. We are now talking about data frameworks. I was with my buddy this weekend. He owns a business and he says, look, I organize data for a living. That was him talking. And so I organize data for a living, but when he said it, it sounded so boring. So when I think data framework, you guys gotta make this sexy. This has gotta be sexy. So tell me what a data framework is. Data is, the, is one of the new natural resources today. Uh, that means data is everywhere. And we better manage it so we can harvest it for the better business outcomes. So data framework is all about having the vision for an enterprise to manage that data, to prepare that data, to leverage that data, right? To consume and leverage that data and also harvest from it, monetize it and so on. So data framework for an organization actually reflects the vision for that organization. So you are defining what is the value of their data for across the lines of business? How do you establish and support the people, the processes, and also the products that you release through that data? So you want to do that effectively. You want to have a, a data vision and a data framework. What is a strong data vision? Give me an example. 
uh, data framework or a vision actually um, reflects the qualities or the strengths of the organization that is actually building AI systems, it has to be very transparent. You know, the data framework should drive the strategy of the organization, also support the tactical projects of that organization. So it has to be operational as well. So, Dick, did Suj get that right? Anything yeah, I, I think so. I would, I would just say that, you know, sort of the data vision is how you want to turn your data into delivered business value. And the data framework is how you go about doing that. So a data framework enables organizations to leverage data strategically, use data as a self-service resource, and drive revenue through process. How'd I do there? Perfect. Pretty decent. Good. I saw a vision statement the other day that I thought was pretty good. It was Stanford's data governance program vision is the, let's see if I get this right. Institutional data is trusted, understood, accurate, and is provided and used in a meaningful, secure, and consistent manner. Kind of long. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty good, except for the revenue. There was no revenue. <laughs> yeah, because it's coming from the uh, Stanford, right? You know, if it comes from an organization, we definitely have to focus on monetizing the data, right? Otherwise, the businesses cannot survive. Standard standpoint, it's still turning that, turning that data into business value, right? So for them, it might be better retention, you know, more students, better educational outcomes and things like that, not necessarily profits. So you guys have given me the definition of a data framework. So let's talk about the framework. What is the framework itself? Data framework consists of four components. It starts with governance, establish the policies to ensure data integrity, accessibility, and usability. You have the people's organizational culture through talent engagement, organizational structure and roles. And then you have the processes. So this is how you analyze the data and how you transform the data sure it's integrity and things like that. And then you have the architecture, which is how you store, distribute, and arrange the data. Some companies just have the architecture, right? They just have a data lake or data warehouse, but they don't have the other pieces on how they govern, use, and process the data. So, Suj, you have a different perspective? Uh, Actually, I don't have a different perspective, but I actually want to add to that a little bit more. Um, the, the governance, right. I think, you know, you also want to take into consideration the security and the privacy of it in establishing that governance. I think that is one of the uh, important uh, pieces that we should add to that uh, list. Here's a question for you, Suj, to follow mm-hmm. on. When I talk to Kristen, the problem is, is that, you know, we talk about AI around culture and talent management, some of it seems intuitive. And then you get into the details and it's like, oh, I never thought of that. Oh, I get what you mean. I get what, you know, I get the details. So I'd like to go a little bit into the details. I heard governance, people, processes, and architecture. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, why don't we let you pick two? I'd like you to talk about what one of those two really means, whether it's governance, people, processes, or architecture. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll let Dick talk to the other Yay. two. <laughs> I would love to definitely talk about governance and people. You got to go first. You got to (laughs) However, all the four uh, pillars, I call them the pillars of the data framework are extremely important. They are integral to the success of the organization. Let me start with the people. When we talk about people, we are talking about roles. We are talking about folks who are data stewards, data designers, consumers, 
and also data harvesters, as I call them. They all have very unique roles in leveraging that enterprise data, driving business value. So it's important to recognize the right people needed in building uh, good applications, in developing uh, streamlined processes and so on. People are very important and they should be talented in the sense they should understand the nuances of the technologies. For example, if you are building an AI system, they should be extremely aware of the AI uh, applications that are out there, but also about the data science uh, and machine learning operations, etc., kind of aspects of it. So data and uh, both structured and unstructured data concepts, they should know. Now, let's talk a little bit about the governance. If I were the CDO, the chief data officer coming into an organization, that's where I will start uh, by looking at what is available today in terms of uh, laying out that uh, standard uh, governance policies for the organization itself. Because when you are looking at the governance, you are actually indirectly looking at the processes that are involved across the lines of business, the architectures that they are leveraging to uh, uh, implement those processes. I will draw out from all these pillars, as I said, people, processes, and architecture in laying out that governance aspect of it. By establishing the policies for that uh, governance, you are not just looking at the data as is, you are building the data integrity of it, which is about accuracy of the data, the consistency of the data across the applications and across the uh, processes and so on. I will also ensure that there is data security and privacy and uh, accessibility of the data by the applications, the architectures and the processes. And one more very important thing about governance is establishing the um, regulations and compliances and the organization is adhering to those things. For example, right, you know, uh, user data rights is a a very important topic that comes again and again through GDPR or, you know, um, California Privacy Act, etc. So I think, you know, governance is actually laying out, establishing the data framework uh, for the organization. Nicely done. All right, Dick, you're left with, what is it, processes and automation? Processes and architecture. And remember, you know, you got to make this sexy, so you got to do something with processes. That sounds terrible. (laughs) That's the process. (laughs) Yeah, so process is really how you go about implementing your data solution. It's the, the choices you make around, do you collect the data first and organize it, analyze it, infuse it? Do you uh, do it as an incremental, uh, sort of an agile process where you implement some of it on a, one set of data, then keep adding pieces of data, adding additional functionality, highly recommended, by the way? Or do you do something like a big bang and try to get all the data in that you ever think you want to need and then uh, you know add everything on there and just kind of roll it out to the big bang not recommended by the way you know how do you pull in people right and pull in all the stakeholders and these can be your business stakeholders that are going to be using this data these can be your data science that are going to be analyzing it these can be your data engineers that are going to be gathering it Uh, these can be you know your system administrators that are going to be running the the data lake or the data warehouse that's going to be implementing it, or the platform that's going to be implementing it. And then how do you just orchestrate all those roles and responsibilities to, you know, achieve all the, the goals of your data framework? 
And then from an architecture standpoint, you know, these are, you know, the nuts and bolts. Where do you store the data? What software and hardware are you going to use? Are you going to put it in the cloud? Are you going to put it on premise? Or is it going to be a hybrid solution? Um, what tools are you going to use to analyze your data? What platforms are you going to use? Do you need to have portability of your data? How are you going to ensure that your data is secure? How are you going to ensure that it implements all the data privacy rules and HIPAA rules and GDPR and those types of things? Where is most of the time spent and which one of these four do you think? What I've seen uh, a lot of the time, well, let's see. I guess I've got to answer that in two questions. A lot of the time, people have spent most of it in an architecture framework, and I don't think that's right. I think more time should be spent in a governance because once you understand the governance, then you can implement it using the people, the process, and the architecture. You agree yes, with that, and Sue? I also think processes is also where it should be uh, implemented because the processes are a direct reflection of uh, the governance. So I think, you know, the most of the time, if you say if you have a project, I think uh, establishing how you are going to implement those rules and policies through the governance is important and making sure those are reflected in the processes. So you may have answered my question here, Dick, unknowingly, and that is I was going to say, hey, where is most of the time spent? And then more, where should most of the time be spent? So you said most of the time was spent maybe in architecture. I can see how that's probably sexy, but you're saying, hey, governance and maybe process where the time should be spent. that true? Yeah. That's absolutely true from my standpoint. I mean, I see a lot of time spent on how am I going to put the data into, you know, my data lake or my data warehouse or my data platform, as opposed to how am I going to use the data and govern the data and process that data. And the more time you spend, you know, up front doing that governance, doing those processes, the better off you'll be. All right. So I took a few notes here. So if I go around the horn again, on terms of governance, this is about standards, rules for data, you know, allowable use cases, and data access, methods of educating and accountability. All right, fine. Architecture, in no particular order here, <laughs> is uh, designing methods, tools, and interfaces to gather that data, and then ensuring data security, uh, which should also be a, a kind of carryover, I guess, into to governance itself. Then there's people. This is the interpretation of the data uh, and make sure you have a fail-safe process to interpret the data. And then you've got to identify uh, skills, roles, personas with the right data skills. Then processes around components of the framework, inserting humans into the loop, roles and responsibilities among businesses and technical stakeholders. Seems like there's a ton of crossover to me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, they're, they're all interconnected. Uh, you know, we kind of put them around the, the outside of a central thing that's called the data framework, and they're all on the outside, but they're all definitely interconnected. And you have to have the governance, but you implement it with the people, the processes, and the architecture, right? And, and the processes depend on the architecture and the governance, as well as the people, because, you know, a process that people can't follow or won't follow is no good to you. When our Producers decided to do this uh, series of three podcasters around the AI Academy. I agreed it was, it was a good idea. So again, we're in stage two here uh, in data frameworks. Are you able to bring this into a playbook or an existing playbook for clients? And can you talk about that? Absolutely. So methodologies and the processes, etc., for building an AI application. 
and we do bring it into uh, the process uh, when we build applications for the customers. For example, uh, the methodologies for the data science and for the AI, iterative methodologies, we actually bring it to the customers and make sure uh, that they are implemented. And then we follow the uh, guide rails that are provided through met those met methodologies also. Best practices is also part of that uh, playbook. I presume that that playbook is derived from working with numerous clients through numerous industries. I mean, I guess, how many engagements would you say you've done under some of these methodologies? Oh, I would say uh, three or four dozens of them uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, the, the delivery of these projects becomes very streamlined because you have the support of those best practices and the methodologies and the standards to follow and the playbooks to. How does the sequence of events go? Like you capture their work requirements or use cases and then bring in the corresponding playbook that we've developed? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, we'll usually start with something like a, what we call a data first workshop which is where we just bring in the different stakeholders of an organization and just essentially talk about their data and what they're trying to accomplish and what the business outcomes are and what data they have and what data they have access to or can collect or not collecting and all those things and just talk about, you know, sort of that overall vision and strategy first and then start implementing it with the playbooks as you described. What do you usually find? That first meeting could go almost anywhere. It can go different places. We normally have facilitators to keep it controlled because you have to fit it within the time you have. Is but, it like uh, a design thinking session? It, it is. It's, it's very like a design thinking session mm -hmm. for data. And so your focus is on data and not necessarily other aspects. Of and we do have a streamlined agenda, Al, to go over what does the customer have today? We call that the as-is architecture. And then what do they want to do going forward, right? And then we take those... Um, requirements to go forward and build a to-be architecture. Um, but, you know, the customer engages on this discovery workshop with us very closely. We capture everything together and we guide them through making those decisions based on what technologies have, are available today. It goes very well and quite successfully too. That makes sense. I mean, does it cost or is that something that uh, IBM in this case, I'm sure other people that do this, provide uh, for, I don't want to say for free, it's an investment that IBM in this case makes on their own, I, I presume, or no, it, it does cost uh, for that workshop. We have both the types. Sometimes uh, we uh, some workshops are uh, free for the customers. Uh, the other kind is when the customer actually wants to go do a very deep dive uh, discovery session, right? They want to bring all the details about their ASIS architecture, and they're very practical and tactical oriented in deciding which projects to go forward with. In those occasions, then it will be a paid engagement. Are these all enterprise clients or some of them SMBs? I mean, smaller business, even startups, or are they most enterprise? They are all the three kinds. Uh, and most of the times I work with the medium and the, the uh, national banks and uh, insurance companies. How about you, uh, Dick? You know, from mine, we cover the whole gamut of public sector. So everything from you know, federal, state, local education, to all the different levels of, of the public sector uh, clients. 
I kind of forgotten about all the government. I know that's where you guys have a huge strength. But is this government focused, what we're talking about here? Or is it uh, pretty much could have fit to any business in any industry? And if that's the case, then what's unique about the government? What do you got to do differently? Well, it can apply to any agency because all agencies have data, right? And, and how to use it. In fact, you know, I would say a sort of defining characteristic of government is it has a lot of data, you know, on all sorts of things. You know, it, it has the, the government and the public sector space has historically gathered a lot of data and not put a, you know, not made use of a lot of data or not made it available to its constituents, right? They'll use it themselves, but not make it available to the constituents for them to use. And so for a lot of what we do with government clients and public sector clients is, is help them organize, collect, uh, analyze that data, and then, you know, infuse it into the other other aspects of governing, right? And to help, the, you know, help make government more accessible to all. I always find my way back mm-hmm. here, and that's bias. And I'm curious, where does data integrity, ethics, and bias fit into this uh, playbook? What are you guys thinking about? How are you making sure that uh, there's fairness, minimize bias, or you know where you have explainability, blah, blah, blah? I'll shut <laughs> Please up. don't. Uh, that was very interesting. You t- touched upon multiple uh, things there, right? You know, you talked about the data integrity, which is very critical to any organization. Foundationally, data integrity is about accuracy and the consistency of the data. But with the advent of the AI technologies, now we expanded on those capabilities to have, to be able to build systems with the data uh, that are more explainable and more trusted as well, right? Of course, you know, there is also data security and privacy, which is very important. So all of a sudden in building an AI system, you are talking not just about the data integrity anymore, but also about building ethical systems and building standards and uh, compliance-based policies into that governance. Fair enough. Well, anything to add there, Dick? The bias is a problem that's always existed, you know, in, in terms of now that we're bringing it into the data and we're building artificial intelligence systems that use that data, it just brings it out more to the forefront. But just as a person can have implicit bias or can have bias in how they make decisions, you can select data that is not a representative sample of your, you know, the population or whatever, and therefore your your data is biased. Uh, you can make assumptions on how you use that data and how you develop those algorithms that uh, essentially codify the biases that you that a person has or a developer has. And so you have to monitor this. You don't only have to monitor it when you first build the model and build the system, but you have to monitor it over time because mm-hmm. models will drift. Uh, you know, the, the population or their characteristics might change. And so you have to continuously monitor your models and the data and the results to make sure that, you know, your model is performing as you intended it to and it's not showing bias. I usually don't like to talk about a lot of products, but just a quick reference because I'm curious. Are you using Watson OpenScale around, you know, for fairness, explainability of drift or are you using other things as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using Watson OpenScale in many situations because it, it's designed to give you that uh, uh, ability to monitor and detect bias uh, and, and model drift over time and makes it easy 
and, and it makes it explainable how the decisions are made because you don't want a black box. Suj mentioned that earlier. Uh, you don't want a black box where, you know, this, you know, inputs go in, a decision comes out, and you don't know how that decision is made. I've got another question on ethics, or I want to drill down further on ethics, but do we hit, do we get everything around data integrity? I would like to add a couple of things about explainability, right? You know, because uh, uh, Dick brought it up and then it needs uh, some attention. So the explainability, also known as XAI, explainable AI, is a very significant factor, right? We have the tools, we have the systems, we are building applications and so on, but for all the people out there and also the uh, governance factor of it, they have to take that extremely seriously in making it an explainable model. Uh, transition all their systems and the data models from black boxes to glass box modeling, where the models are uh, verifiable, explainable, trustworthy. Let me ask you this. In most of the scenarios you're talking about, if you're driving explainability, and you're uh, seeking out bias, how much of it is auto-corrected and how much of it, it requires manual intervention to look at the results of, say, like open scale to say, all right, I see what it sees and I'm going to make a change accordingly? That's a very good question, right? Without tools like open scale, you have to do uh, quite a bit of reverse engineering to see if the model is uh, fair or not because otherwise it's not explainable. And that's why the fairness factors and the explainable factors have become extremely important through open scale, uh, where uh, you are able to uh, understand what the model is saying, if the data is biased, either induced bias or inherent bias, and not just understand de uh, detecting bias, but actually fixing the bias, debiasing it through open scale. Yeah, so, you know, what I know of OpenScale, because I developed it, <laughs> We just for the, the users, I mean, I was asking a lot of questions just to see how the the field is using it, but, you know, it monitors fairness, explainability, drift, and it does the traceability that Suge is, kind of reverse engineers the entire problem and opens it up with that quote-unquote glass house as you, as you talked about. Then it also visualize and track AI models in production as well. A good explanation. L let me talk about ethics. Most of the time when I'm talking with clients myself, increasingly, almost every engagement I would say at this point in time, we're talking about ethics, which is interesting because usually you're talking about bias. Some of that is now, or at least, there's either at least one conversation in every engagement I do that turns into ethics, meaning ethics and AI being the line between what is achievable and what is right, which could be very, very different. The reliance, how do I stay within corporate values and principles? We, we always talk about humans being replaced by AI, what's reality, what's not. I, I don't know. There's a lot of different elements of this. Do you guys go into that with your methodologies? Do you tackle this when you're doing your workshops? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a piece that we have to, to take a look at because, you know, the ethics of AI, you know, is appropriate from your uh, your value standpoint for your organization. Are you accountable uh, for the outcomes of, of the decisions that your system makes and how it impacts the world? Uh, you know, can you explain it as we talked about? Uh, you know, is it, uh, did people understand why it made the decisions it made and are those decisions reasonable and fair? 
Um, do you uh, preserve a user's uh, data rights in terms of uh, you know, only using the data that they say you can use and not invading their privacy or violating some uh, compliance regulation or something that, uh, that a user might have. But does this ultimately manifest itself into terms of, uh, you know, as part of your engagement, by example, in this case, towards, you know, around governance and policies for AI that ultimately are put into place as a result of this exercise? It does. You know, everyone is aware of and want to actually understand their data better. They do want to know if the data is biased, indirectly induced, or if there is inherent bias to the data, and they do want to fix it. So client uh, interest and engagement in these topics. Uh, so they do want to know, first of all, as uh, uh, Dick mentioned uh, a while ago, they st always start with the drift in the, their models that they build. And then inherently they uh, talk about the, the fairness of their data, del delivering solutions uh, that are explainable, the uh, building applications that uh, are fair to the end users and that are adhering to the data rights, the GDPR and California uh, Act. And also they want to be accountable for the results that they will deliver for their uh, customers. It is actually a favorite topic for almost all the customers that we work with. I've got a few more questions uh, for you all, um, but this is kind of a, a natural pause as it relates to the data framework. Anything we miss? I think there's uh, something related to some of the top ethical issues that, that we didn't cover. And those are focused by uh, AI in terms of you know dealing with you know, is AI going to take people's jobs? Is it going to replace humans? Is AI going to cause economic inequality or gender inequality? Is AI just reproducing human bias that already exists? Or, or can we use the AI to eliminate that bias? AI concerning security and privacy is a big issue because the amount of data collected on an individual, especially by some of the large tech organizations is tremendous an amount of and you've seen this just on you type something in an email and certain ads pop up related to what you ask a question about in that email and stuff like that you know can i use ai and can i use data for malicious intent or misuse it you know to swindle you or, or commit fraud or or you know even things of, of serious more serious magnitude so is AI going to take all our jobs? Is that your belief? No. Sure, Sujo would back me up on this one. As, as people who work in that field, it's not going to take over everyone's job anytime in the near future. You know, we joke about it, but there's a lot of people out there that are really seriously concerned about it. Yeah. I mean, the example I like to give is one that we're very familiar with in the, uh, like the virtual assistant type of uh, category. And the example I give is that, you know, we've all been there at the ticket line at the, at the airport, 10 or 15 people are backed up because, you know, the person at the counter talking to the agent is their, a father, you know, that their plane was delayed getting out of the previous airport, the flight out was canceled, and they're just trying to get home because you know, their daughter's getting married the next day or something like that, right? <laughs> Virtual assistant's not going to solve that problem. But if I'm, if I'm in that line and all I really want to know is, why is my name not on the upgrade list? 
you know, that's something a virtual assistant can handle. You know, the difference is, is that you need people in the service industries and stuff like that that have that domain knowledge that know those frequently asked questions that are tired of answering the same question in the same manner for the 60th time that day. That's what AI and technology can do for you and do it reliably mm-hmm. and do it more consistent than an actual human being does because a virtual assistant doesn't care that it's working 24 by seven or hadn't had his cup of coffee in the morning or had a bad day. It'll give consistent answers and reliable answers. But a person is much more adaptive and can solve those hard problems that the virtual assistant just can't do. And so what we actually find happening is that, you know, instead of replacing people, now allow those people to work on those hard problems that are far more interesting. And we actually see job retention go up and the employee retention go up because they're now not bored to death and leave after three months. It's kind of like they say, what is the saying goes, AI won't replace managers, but managers <laughs> using AI will replace those that aren't. That's right. Yeah, so AI, That's right. yeah, so AI is all about uh, improving those efficiencies and augmenting our expertise, right? At the end of the day, the AI applications, for example, can e- evaluate the data, they process the data, and give us all the da- data points so the humans can make the right decisions faster and better. Makes sense. All right, look, anything else we missed? Because and then I'll pivot. I want to ask you guys uh, just a couple of personal questions. Not personal; they're not that personal. But before we wrap up, anything yeah, we missed? Yeah. We good? I think we're good. All right, Suj, I'll start with you. What's probably the most important lesson you've learned in AI? How fascinating it is to teach the and train the machines to do the work that humans do uh, in a consistent manner. Uh, with more accuracy, right, you know, 24-7. But at the same time, it doesn't take our role of building those machines to be perfect. That's one of the things that uh, are my takeaways. How about you, uh, Dick? Yeah, different answer? Yeah, a slightly different answer. But, uh, you know, one of the answers I've seen is that, you know, in dealing with AI, it's it's all starts about the data, Right. The data is always hard to train the models and to train the virtual assistants or to, you know, train your models for financial scoring or anything like that. It's always a lot harder to collect and validate and generate that labeled training data than you think it is. And it always takes longer than you think it should take. You know, I told uh, several clients, actually, is that a dollar invested in generating that data and that training data is the best dollar you, you know, you'll get more bang for that dollar than a dollar invested anyplace else. Good. All right. So what is AI, this going with, back with you again, Dick, what is AI not very good at? AI still has, has problems dealing with some things that are blatantly and obvious to empathy. humans, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, an answer to the question, I mean, you, if you watched the, the Jeopardy system for IBM Watson way back when, you know, it came up with an answer that wasn't even a U.S. citizen, uh, airport or city, excuse me. But it was, right? It, you know, it, if you looked at it, you know, there actually was evidence to support the answer that Watson gave. AI can be very good at what it does. It just doesn't have that whole breadth of experience and, and that whole context of data that a human being just 
inherently collects and uses to evaluate those things. I was remember one example I had, uh, this was early on in the, the first Watson system we delivered to a commercial customer. Client program manager came to me and said, Dick, Watson's broke. I said, why is Watson broke? He says, doesn't know who the first president of the United States is. I said, well, who does it say the first president of the United States is? She says, John Hansen. I said, well, who's John Hansen? She says, that's my point. At that point in time, there was no explainability, you know, nothing. It was just the answer. And so I had to go in and dig through a bunch of logs and stuff like that to find out that, oh, John Hansen was the first president of the United States under <laughs> the Continental Congress assembled. So, <laughs> the, you know, but Watson answered the question that was asked, okay. not the question yeah. that we thought was being asked, which was, what was the first president of the United States under the U.S. Constitution? Well, if you asked Watson that, it came up with George Washington, which was the answer we expected. But Watson actually found evidence for the 21st president of the United States, the 41st president of the United States, the first president of the United States to address the Austrian parliament, first George Bush, <laughs> which I know because I saw that, I saw that data on it. You know, those are some of the things that AI does not do well. So almost too literal. Um, you ask the question, you'll get the answer. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you'll, get, you'll get the answer to the question you asked, not the question you thought you asked. Yeah, no, that's good. It tells a lot about our, ourselves, actually. All right. Yeah. So here's a question to either one of you. It's one of my favorite questions. It's one of the toughest questions. Tell me something that's true, but that almost nobody agrees with you on. And one of those you can't use, Dick, is that. Tampa Bay is going to win because look, nobody agrees with you on that, but they can't use it. They're going to lose. But anyway, tell me something that's true and that almost nobody agrees with you on. That's a tough one. I know. All right. All right. I got one. And that's that. Oh, you got one. All right. Let's see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah. Like, like well, it's, it's quoted in my title there. You know, I'm a digital human evangelist, right? And this is just the adding a, essentially a, putting a face on AI. That's what we like to call it. But just the ability for when you put a face on AI that can express uh, emotional intelligence and react to a person uh, emotionally, with, you know, their facial expressions and, and, and that stuff, that goes a long way to enhancing the trust a person has in AI systems. And so from my standpoint, you know, I think that, uh, you know, digital humans and stuff like that, and instead of talking to a, uh, you know, a black cylinder or a box or an orb or something like that, or a white one, you know, eventually we'll be talking to a, you know, a digital person on the screen that actually can react emotionally, you know, to people. I think that's the future of the human. I totally agree with you, Rich. So yeah, there is that's minus creepy, one. Man. That's creepy. All right, so this is the easy one now. What do you work towards in your free time? Voraciously reader, so I read a lot of books. And uh, unknown uh, fact about me is I write poetry. Oh, nice. We have to. So you know, your challenge for you is you got to give us a little snippet or something we can put in the show notes. All right, what about you, Dick? Oh, I like to sail. And uh, I'm totally bummed right now because, you know, I should be down in Auckland, New Zealand watching the America's Cup. But instead, I'm stuck here <laughs> in my home office uh, talking to you. <laughs> All right, Dick, I got another one for you. Who's your number one role model? Not related. To uh, number one role model. Uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, just uh, sort of the men and women in the military. Uh, when I was in the Navy and stuff like that that I've met that you know, would put service, uh, you know, at personal sacrifice. 
I think that you know so it would be a group of but uh, you know it's the people that uh, that you know have dedicated their lives to service. Okay, nicely done. I can't take that away. I, I would That's definitely fantastic. say the uh, uh, healthcare you? officials, healthcare folks uh, who are in the front end day in and day out. Uh, they're always inspiring for me. Nice. Okay. Uh, and last question uh, until we have you guys on next. But last question, and this is perfect to start with you, Suj, because you said you're an avid reader. Oh, my what God. What is the book you recommend most? I, I would recommend 100 books. <laughs> I would say uh, all. I read a lot about historic fiction, and I read about uh, technology and so on. So I just can't pick one book. Oh, come on. you got to give okay. me one, just one. Okay. You can give me one. We know that you love so, 100. Um, but what, what I would, first uh, one that comes uh, off top of Let me go back to Arthur C. Clarke's book of uh, Space Odyssey. Oh, okay. Let's see. That's good. Space Odyssey. All right. What about you, Dick? The I think it's called The Discipline of Technology. I'm trying to remember right now. I just can't drop my mind. But it's, it's about uh, Admiral Rickover and the story of naval nuclear power. And you know, how you have to not only have, you know, worry about the technology, but also the people and the processes that go along with that. And you have to uh, have systems that merge all those three to build reliable systems like the track record built in naval nuclear power. Okay, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, you'll, we'll reach out to you and find the exact name. Yeah, I'll find Thank it. you both for spending your time with me today. I had a good time, and uh, I appreciate your words of wisdom. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And for those listeners, uh, as always, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the podcast. Until next time, I'll talk to you later. Hey, Suj, can you sing us out of here? Come on, give us something. Give us something. Come on. Don't worry. Be happy now. (laughs) Uh, I caught you on guard, didn't I? All right. (laughs) All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.